Satan and Golem Incorporated. In the 20th century, the Golem legend in its Prague setting made it big. In 1915, in Germany, it hit the big screen, same time, double feature, that it went public, published in a blockbuster novel by Prague author Gustav Meyrink. This book, which included among its plot points how-to instructions for simulation of the symptoms of epilepsy, also made the best sellout list, according to medical officers faced with soldiers who preferred to malinger on rather than rush into the World War effort. The scholarship or intellectual history of the idea of the golem, as set up between the bookends supplied by Gershom Scholem and Moshe Edel, overlooks these screen or scream memories while styling with cipher and letter magic. But thanks to the memories, the Golem security screening device comes out in the watch of these scholarly materials as missing, pressing, marked. Even though Edel too neglects admitting the pop reception into his expanded and corrective history of the Golem as Jewish mystical idea, he delineates the timing of Sholem's Golem studies that even or especially without comment turns up the volume on the excluded and implied screen texts. It was in 1933 that Sholem found himself all of a sudden taking a research interest in the Golem. Then in 1963, Norbert Wiener's monograph, God and Golem Incorporated, sparked Sholem's new reading of the legend, the legend to the map of the cipher magic of relations between man and machine. Kept on titular terms as passing acquaintance with the exploration of artificial intelligence and ethics in Wiener's study, the direct connection with the golem, the point of the title, was then driven home in Sholem's reading. One year later, Sholem revisited the golem idea in a lecture he delivered on the occasion of the arrival of the first computer in Israel. In God and Golem Incorporated, Wiener proposes a division of labor between man and machine given the state of mechanical intelligence at that time. Machines can do the math simply because they are faster and more reliable. Humans, for their part, can wrap their minds around vague ideas, in other words, the component parts of literature and art, which the machines reject outright as formless. In dealing with these as yet imperfectly defined ideas, mechanical computers of the present day are very nearly incapable of programming themselves. Otherwise, however, machines can learn, can improve, and program themselves. But even if there were nothing left for the machines to learn, as long as they can't generate themselves out of themselves, humans will count at least as the reproductive part of cybernetic society. But replication also already mediates the gap between us and our future generation, a mediation that is along for the ride the first time technology sends us. It is conceptually possible, Wiener states, although he must admit that it is not yet practicable in 1963 for a human being to be sent over a telephone line. But even if in theory we could be transmitted in this way, in other words, from point A to point B, 
Would we indwell this transmission at once as technology and as thought, vague ideas and all? Would our being also be in the transmission? Would we be technological? Because there are machines that can in fact replicate themselves in 1963, Wiener argues along these lines of questioning that technology already and irreversibly relates to us in terms of competition or cohabitation. Like evolution's claim of our ape descent, so with the claim that machines can reproduce, there attaches something of the reprobation that attached in earlier ages to the sin of sorcery. It was not so very long ago that someone advancing the claims of cybernetics would have been off to the Inquisition rapid fire for devil dealing. The subject of learning, and in particular of machines that learn to play games, is still relevant to the age-old religious problem of the game between the creator and a creation. If we do not lose ourselves in the dogmas of omnipotence and omniscience, the conflict between God and the devil is a real conflict, and God is actively engaged in a conflict with his creature in which he may very well lose the game. Can any creator, even a limited one, play a significant game with his own creature? Wiener is tempted to depart from the Old Testament understanding or setting of the devil's game and conjure current examples of cybernetic sinning, such as so-called gadget worship. Just as the Black Mass draws on belief in the very powers that good Christians attribute to the host, in order to manipulate those powers for self-gain or to inflict harm. So it is still the same sin that gadget worshippers commit, which consists of using the magic of modern automatization to further personal profit or let loose the apocalyptic terrors of nuclear warfare. If this sin is to have a name, let that name be sorcery. Sorcery or magic in Wiener's estimation always causes technical difficulties because of the literal mindedness with which our wishes are administered, represented, and repressed. The operation of magic is singularly literal minded, and if it grants you anything at all, it grants what you ask for, not what you should have asked for or what you intend. While it is always possible to ask for something other than we really want, this possibility is most serious when the process by which we are to obtain our wish is indirect, and the degree to which we have obtained our wish is not clear until the very end. Usually we realize our wishes, insofar as we do actually realize them, by a feedback process, in which we compare the degree of attainment of intermediate goals with our anticipation of them. In this process, the feedback goes through us and we can turn back before it is too late. If the feedback is built into a machine that cannot be inspected until the final goal is attained, the possibilities for catastrophe are greatly increased. Wiener would rather not ride in the completely automatic automobile he imagines coming down the assembly lines of fail-safe technology. Indeed, the automatic car sounds like the rocket that one would rather aim than ride. What begins to open wide is a World War II context that in 1963 makes ghost appearances in the Cold War setting. 
consider as model for this rewiring of past projections in the early 1960s, the case of Spectre, the underworld organization that was introduced in the first film versions of Ian Fleming's James Bond adventures as third party to and parasite of the Cold War oppositions. We tend to identify the science and technology of computing, together with the whole modern genre of science fiction, with the Cold Nuclear War. But the Cold War, more often than not, proved to be, like Spectre in the movies Dr. No and From Russia with Love, just a screen memory away from the hot world war that it was either still working on or through or just covering up. Alan Turing's precursor role in the invention of computing during World War II has made it into Hollywood pictures. No need, therefore, to break into and remake the complete scene of his invention of computing out of the race to crack the Nazi-German Enigma code. However, it's worth emphasizing that Alan Turing inherited from his Polish colleagues who had made the first breakthrough in getting past the enigma, a certain gendering of components of the code to crack. The Polish cryptanalysts called a repetition of the same letter every fourth letter, that is, with three steps between them, a female, until a pattern began to emerge over the red body of females. But the opening of the code through the identification of the females was access only in theory. Tracking the female letters in the Enigma ciphertext, in other words, in six times 17,576 positions, was no longer possible via the orthodox perforated sheets approach. Instead, the search would have to be performed by machine. The first search engine, a machine called BOM because it ticked like one, was built in Poland in 1938. This bomb exploited the electrical circuitry of the Enigma machine by using an electrical method of recognizing when a so-called matching had been found. Because the Enigma was a machine, mechanical cryptanalysis became necessary and possible. Through the probable word method, the British cryptanalysts led by Turing spiritualized or paternalized, to borrow the idiom of Freud's Moses and monotheism, the sensual female patterns for the now millions of connections per unit to be translated. But even this machine or method, which moved one baby step away from the bombs, still depended absolutely upon finding closed loops in the crib. One of Turing's colleagues added the so-called diagonal board which meant that the decrypt team no longer needed to look for loops and could make do with fewer and shorter cribs. Now, out of the loop requirements, they could raid the crib for rich combinations with no more limit than the enigma observed. Turing's legacy, the universal machine, held the delegated place at the end of this war work that produced the Colossus and, for the audio portion of encryptment, the Delilah. But by then, in the 1950s, Turing was undergoing hormone treatments to curb his homosexuality, which came out when his deviance crossed the path of a delinquent and brought them both before the law. 
The treatments created female patterns, notably breasts, within the traffic of his bodily existence. After the physical treatments were stopped, Turing opted for psychic treatment by a Jungian analyst. Now the regression seemed to register all the phases in flashback and reverse of the mounting of a psychologization, mediatization, and not seeing of the war to which Turing's universal machine was heir. The heir was conditioned by its service as decoder of what the Nazi enigma had first encoded, and protected by the Nazi mode of not seeing, grew up into full computing capacity. In 1954, Turing committed suicide by taking a bite out of a poisoned apple. The Turing story of technologization of calculation and intelligence begins then with the assertion of sexual opposition, one side of which then gets technologized, which means both sides are implicated or excluded until, it seems, decoding, calculation, or thought could proceed without the maternal body. But this overcoming of the crib throws a perfect fit with the crypt, the glass coffin of his suicidation of Snow White's poisoned apple. Inside we find encased the hermaphroditic body, the byproduct of bio-procedures aiming to restore Turing's proper place in the interpersonal context of sexual difference between genders. The tracking of female patterns by men with machines on their minds that comes complete with suicide is as much a computer science anecdote as it is already since the 18th century a science fiction that links Bauta, Frankenstein, the Sandman, and Eve of the Future Eden. Gregory Bateson sought to make the psyche compute by opening up the field of cybernetics, in particular through the notion of double-bind, which was inspired by the rocket science of negative feedback. Bateson contributed to the understanding of schizophrenic language and of family systems at large. Already in 1946, Bateson held a seminar on feedback mechanisms that was organized around investigation of the Yatmal culture in which the ceremony of transvestism served as a homeostatic mechanism whenever divisive hostilities were on the rise. One of Bateson's colleagues in this new interdisciplinary field, the psychoanalyst Lawrence S. Kuby, who regularly attended the 1946 seminar, worked throughout his career on an inside view of sexual difference that haunted him precisely to the extent that he could never give it a body or a rest. Towards the end of his career, which he had dedicated in part to the cure of homosexuality, he was still picking up the unfinished essay in progress. Now this process of postponement must come to an end. I must grapple with the process of putting it into final shape as best I can. Or again, now I feel that it can no longer be postponed, no matter how much it may expose me to misunderstanding and misinterpretation, I will have to carry it through to its own logical conclusion. His postulated drive to become both sexes was doubly bound in his highly self-reflected understanding of it to the death drive. The psyche must break down if the unconscious goal of sex is the unattainable one to change sides. 
And if this unattainable goal also represents a drive to go in two divergent directions at the same time, it results in a deeper inner schism in the personality, a schism which can be represented by insatiable compulsions and obsessions and by the superimposed construction of opposing phobias. Everything becomes split, and it is on the splitting among conscious and unconscious purposes and pre-conscious struggles to achieve these purposes that psychotic disorganization is based. The only alternative to this living end, says Kubi, is suicide. The essay, The Drive to Become Both Sexes, was published posthumously. In 1950, Turing wrote an essay that was at the same time a science fiction. In his Computing Machinery and Intelligence, Turing introduces the rules for a game of imitation by way of answering the question, can machines think? First, he imagines the game played by a man, a woman, and the interrogator who, based on their answers to his questions, answers that need not be truthful, must decide who is which gender. Turing then asks, what will happen when a machine takes the part of A in this game? A, by the way, according to the original example, was the man in the experimental game, which means the new game of decidability or undecidability is played out between doubles, machine and woman. Turing continues raising questions. Will the interrogator decide wrongly as often when the game is played like this as he does when the game is played between a man and a woman? These questions replace our original, can machines think? Given the third degree, it is conceivable that a form of artificial intelligence could be indistinguishable for human intelligence from human intelligence. Turing furthermore stresses that this form of artificial intelligence will be technological, in other words, mediated and produced. Turing dismisses outright the derivation of a direct transmission from electric or electronic overlaps between technological circuitry and the human nervous system. All along, however, there is one exception to this game of finding artificial intelligence and human intelligence indistinguishable that Turing just cannot get around. It's the phenomenon of telepathy. If telepathy is admitted, it will be necessary to tighten our test up. Earlier, he admitted that, unfortunately, the statistical evidence, at least for telepathy, is overwhelming. With the admission of telepathy, then, the situation could be regarded as analogous to that which would occur if the interrogator were talking to himself and one of the competitors was listening with his ear to the wall. To put the competitors into a telepathy-proof room would satisfy all requirements. In his test setting, any telepathy connections presumably would be live, but as he mentions earlier in regard to the overwhelming evidence of telepathy, it is very difficult to rearrange one's ideas so as to fit these new facts in. Once one has accepted them, it does not seem a very big step to believe in ghosts. In 1953, in Arthur Clarke's Childhood's End, telepathy is doubly marked as the exception making a separation between humans and the alien overlords 
who otherwise rule or guide them. The aliens, who are devil lookalikes or were once upon a time taken by us for devils, represent the highest development of consciousness, ego, reason. The future that comes toward the human species is an evolutionary version of union or reunion with the Godhead. It is a future that the alien devil egos, however, will never experience. The devils are ordered by the overmind to protect the human species from its innate mass suicide drive. The alien devils come to Earth as a way more advanced techno-culture dictating its terms of peace on Earth. But it turns out that all this protection was paid to maintain the conditions for the mutation that will end the human species, but send its dematerialized sequel into the overmind. Even though humankind appears on the scale of its self-entitlement to intellectual and scientific penetration, evolutionarily inferior to the devil aliens, there is something else in the human makeup that exceeds the understanding that came from outer space. This excess can be found on the margins of our own rational culture in the form of occult inquiry, in particular as evident in the study of telepathy. But this excess or access was the threat the devil aliens were ultimately sent by the overmind to contain as their commander explains to the last couple of parents. All down the ages, there have been countless reports of strange phenomena, poltergeists, telepathy, precognition, which you had named but never explained. During the first half of the 20th century, a few of your scientists began to investigate these matters. The forces they might have unleashed transcended any perils that the atom could have brought. For the physicists could only have ruined the Earth. The paraphysicists could have spread havoc to the stars. Let us say that you might have become a telepathic cancer, a malignant mentality. The evolutionary mutation of the children on the way to the vanishing act of merger with the overmind passes through an increasing immediacy of direct telepathic communication or communion not only in words, but in actions, too. Thus, telepathy is what tags humankind for this extinction, I mean distinction, but only after the morbid human propensity for spooculation, for telecommunication with the long-distant, the deceased, has been excised from the telepathy sets on the way to the future. All over the place, Clark argued that new and higher forms of intelligence, whether from outer space or in our own future as we evolve and sink or swim with the scientific developments getting us into outer space, will be technological. Biology has concluded its evolutionary program. Technology will take over where biology leaves off. This leave-taking is what is consummated during merger with the overmind. What must be conveyed as going on is intelligence, intelligent life, thought without a body. This technological phase of evolution need not be stuck on machines. It could be the paraphysical invisible wave force of the overmind. In his 1950 story, The Sentinel, Clark evokes a highly evolved technology that lies far beyond our horizon, perhaps, 
namely the technology of paraphysical forces. Clark also sets up in this story his recurrent definition of what space exploration would represent in a vaster scheme of life forms. In the story, an obelisk, a so-called sentinel, was left behind by a more highly evolved species from outer space. Aliens, like the devil, like to watch, observe, and intervene when all systems are go, going their way anyway. They would be interested in our civilization only if we proved our fitness to survive by crossing space and so escaping from the earth our cradle. That is the challenge that all intelligent races must meet sooner or later. During World War II, Clark made scientific advances that led after the war to the launching of the first satellite, to which he later attributed the considerable impact of already de-geocentering our view of the universe before and as a precondition for interplanetary travel. But the challenge issued to mankind from outer space in the Sentinel also admits a down or deadbeat. The challenge that all intelligent races must meet is a double challenge, for it depends in turn upon the conquest of atomic energy and the last choice between life and death. The last choice is made for mankind in childhood's end, and which choice was made remains undecidable. Corellan says that the parents, bearing testimony to the change, even in the absence of a future coming toward them, are searching for something that is no longer there. And in their search they find faces emptier than those of the dead, for even a corpse has some record carved by time's chisel upon its features to speak when the lips themselves are dumb. Clark resettled the devil within a science fiction about the proper timing of evolution beyond all links with the missing. And beyond the pleasure principle, Freud addressed the demonic in the context or contest of life and death drives. But in the stop and start of his speculations, Freud describes a series of devil fictions or scenarios, but does so, as he says, only as devil's advocate, not as client or worshiper. One of Freud's unco-signed scenarios in Beyond the Pleasure Principle throws a perfect fit with childhood's end. Freud jumps the gun, death drive style, and formulates a tentative conclusion, the goal of life is death. How then do the self-preservative instincts fit in? They can now be seen as insurance that the organism will follow its own path to its proper death. The organism wishes to die only in its own fashion. But then Freud drops even the role of devil's advocate and picking up the ambivalent track of the other begins again. But let us pause for a moment and reflect. It cannot be so. The sexual instincts appear under a very different aspect. In the confessions of Aleister Crowley and autohagiography, the ancestor of modern polymorphous paganism, in particular the Luciferian direction in this mass or mess, motivates the upsurge of his own rule-busting life and the concomitant switch in his memoirs from third to first-person narration through his relationship to his father's death. 
It was the synchronization of his dream of his father's death with his father's actual dying that gave him a rules and inhibitions busting ego. His mother kept hanging around ecstatic on this line of dad's certainty. After years of dreaming of her death, one of his dreams did finally coincide with her passing. Crowley suggests, however, that this dream did have the same effective charge as the one, and only one was required, that was joined to the father's certain death. To serve the devil, you must be without inhibitions on a scale of supernormal to psychopathic. Belief in God or in the alternative occult after lifestyles of vampires or werewolves, for instance, is compatible with an inhibited sensibility. One stuck on loss or still working on it. What the devil requires is the uninhibited capacity for compensating for a lack through a successful operation of substitution without complications to the full extent that the lack or loss is even seen as having been required or desired in exchange for the devil's offer of dad certainty. The relationship the devil pitches to prospective clients consists in the deferral of suicide for the quality time it takes before the deadline, once proper and certain death, along which you sign when you sign with the devil. With dad certainty, in other words, with life versus death drives and the demonic as principle, Freud could pass as philosopher. Devil reference is a passing mention in Freud because the death of the other or the dead other is like primal repression, one of the non-negotiable facts of psychic life based on the inconceivability of one's own death and hence of death. It is this inside view that throws self for a loop through other and keeps us in the vicinity of mourning and unmourning while also giving us the techno-high of egoic immortality or in the felt absence of replication, mass suicide. The devil was the password that allowed Freud to join the big boys, the philosophers and journalists, and address death, even one's own death, or is it the father's? In so many Faustian fictions and science fictions, we see the devil give time in exchange for soul, specifically more time, more of the same time, but at the same time, more focused time, quality time. But the devil cannot reverse time. The paraphysics of relative time, like the fantastic combos of dead or alive family identifications, remain accessible only to the human psyche or soul. Owing perhaps to the novel's Jungian background and the opening shutting of its recent past, all that is relative or relational in childhood's end is annihilated or reborn as evolutionary progress marching us to God. One flashback comes up only to be dismissed as false analogy. Somewhere long ago, he had seen a century-old newsreel of such an exodus. It must have been at the beginning of the First World War, or the Second. There had been long lines of trains crowded with children, pulling slowly out of the threatened cities. But these who were leaving now were no longer children, whatever they might be, and this time there would be no reunion. The striving for union with God or overmind, which leaves life as we know it behind, no longer misses the link 
that makes evolutionary change, a change that comes across like a break or leap because the continuity shot with the stage of development that came right before is a lost loss in generation. But what's the big difference between this break on the upbeat, this overmind nirvana, and the mass suicidal embrace of nothingness on death drive? The last legacy of humankind, according to Childhood's End, is the relationship to our dead, the relationship of mourning. Parental guidance goes off in a blaze of nuclear self-destruction, which is aimed at the cut-off and leftover relay of unmourning. The rattle that had once belonged to Jennifer Ann still lay where she had dropped it when her mind turned into the unknowable remoteness it inhabited now. She has left her toys behind, thought George, but ours go hence with us. He thought of the royal children of the pharaohs, whose dolls and beads had been buried with them 5,000 years ago. The duodynamic of life and death belonged to the diplomatic service of Freud's science. But on the inside track, sexual difference or self-difference was at the same time guaranteed through psychic excess, for example, the excess of the unconscious. Contrary to Jung's understanding and critique, Freud's notion of the unconscious cannot be reduced to the sum total of one's repressions, nor can it therefore be reduced to lifetime. This being an excess of lifetime does not lead Freud to believe in the immortality of the soul or to sign up with the devil in order to get back the redemption value on this deposit of excess, the value of a wholeness that would be greater than and would encompass all your partings. In his 1932 new introductory lecture, Dissection of the Personality, Freud therefore argues that the cultural superego is transmitted superego to superego rather than, say, from the parents via internalization to the child. This transmission of the superego's foreign body skips the beat of received notions of influence, natural selection, generation, or even transference, countertransference and opens up the border zone Freud reserved for telepathy. In another new introductory lecture, Dreams and Occultism, Freud argues that only the analytic understanding of the unconscious made it possible to decode the telepathic transmissions going through the case studies he presents. The telepathic message or content, whether a gold coin or a forecast, is regularly referred to by Freud as foreign body because of its contextlessness in the real time of its appearance or arrival, its lack of proper location or burial place. By rendering telepathy and its analog, the telephone, each the other's placeholder, rehearsal or repetition, Freud concludes the lecture by folding psychic excess, call it the unconscious, into our technological relations. Technology is about a certain mode of being in the ready position. That position was supplied by the first loved one who died on us. That's how Freud at first puts it in his psychomythico-historical mode. But in other words and first worlds, the position also goes to so-called primal repression. The one no, no one, not even the most spectacular psychopath or devil worshiper, 
can cut off despite his fate or in spite of his father. The one inevitable repression, therefore, that secures the maternal body as off-limits, as a limit to pleasure, and sends us off into the supplementary field of substitution. Primal repression installs in little boy and little girl alike sexual difference as the force that is with us when we are beside ourselves in the big between, the being too that delivers up each individual psyche to the trans of self-difference. In 1986, Jean-Francois Lyotard, positioned between theoretical inquiry into artificial intelligence and science fiction, a dialogue in which he and she take a turn reflecting on the question the essay bears as title, Can Thought Go On Without a Body? One of Turing's references in his 1950 essay, Samuel Butler's Erwan, proves an accurate forecast according to Lyotard's thought experiment. We are the genitals of our machines that are doing the evolving for us. But that in several billion years, the solar system will certainly cease to exist already changes everything. In particular, the private parts we play in the sum or sun total of man and machine relations. That takes care of taking it also interpersonally. He offers up these calculations that the conditions of inevitable exile from the solar system will mean that our terrestrial and corporeal selves will not be along for the ride into the future. The reserve of infinitude that gave humanity the power to defer ultimate answers and sustain thought as interminably searching, striving, will come to an end with the last sunset. Materiality as we know it will cease to exist. No one will ring or hear a funeral bell. Then it will be too late to comprehend that your passionate, uncompletable questioning always already depended on a life of the spirit that secretly was also always a form of earthly life. The end of the solar system amounts then to the death of death. Human mortality belongs to the life of the human spirit. The death of the sun introduces an irreducible division between death and thought. If death, then no thought. Negation without remainder. No negation that would be a negation of itself so that thought games could be constructed on its basis, sheer event, catastrophe. Because this catastrophe concerns a change in the conditions of matter, the question that can still be raised, like a ghost, is how thought in a concrete sense can remain possible. Technological and scientific research already accepted the wager and must continue to run the race. But, he says, technology predates and produces humanity. More than or before machines, technology is in effect the system that identifies, stores, and processes data important for survival in order to derive from regularly recurring patterns certain forms of behavior that protect and sustain life. While the body can be seen as the hardware of our solar-era technology called human thought, language can be seen as the software in search now of new hardware to which to adapt itself. Only after this adaptation or mutation has taken place 
could the death of the sun mean death as usual. Thinking without a body is the condition for thinking the end of the body, the sun, earth, and that thought that cannot be separated from the body. But he says the software transportability of language is still, in 1986, too caught up in binary logic, as demonstrated among several examples by the Turing machine and Wiener and Newman's cybernetics. Human thought doesn't operate with bits, but rather admits imprecise ambivalent data. Human thought does not tune out the margin, the aside. She. Some artificial but analogical body must be granted artificial thought so that it can be taken away from the earth before its destruction. What we call the body is the site or placeholder of a certain inseparability of thinking and suffering. This suffering is not a symptom written into the spirit. It does not happen or impose itself from without. The pain is itself thinking, pain conceived, that is, as inclusive of the boring probing that gets written off as boredom. To think is to remain open to an imperative that is not yet known, and that is a pain why it's even really boring. She asks, will your imagining and thinking machines suffer too? What can the future mean to them since they consist only of memory? She continues, that's not the point you might counter as long as the machines can realize the paradoxical relationship to the so-called data, which are not given, but which can only be given. The opening, the empty place or clearing that is there in the midst of the completed inscriptions must be created over and over again. This hurts because the not yet thought carves its opening where it was already secretly etched between or behind inscribed lines that harbor and attend what is in effect the reopening of a wound. The memories of the machines should be able to feel this pain of the not thought, the not inscribed, that still remains to be inscribed. Their rewinding must be a rewounding too. How else could these machines otherwise begin to think? We need machines that suffer from the being stored, the stordom of their many memories. Suffer not the little children to come unto this future. Forget reproduction. Remember or reconstitute instead inside our techno-future the sexual difference that cuts across suffering thinking and that proves inseparable from it. She concludes, This other sexual difference, not the one that is measured on one's own person or released but contained in couple formation, must be programmed inside the separation from body and earth that takes off with the merger with technology. If we are to survive body and earth via technology, then sexual difference or self-difference or the unconscious would have to get into our programs. The wound of takeoff cannot be left behind in our wondrous flight into techno-body futures. Otherwise, only our fantasies about and projections of ourselves as units and self-unities would be along for the ride for the suicide. <laughs>